Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning, everybody. We come on a little bit early because we've got 10 minutes to spare and uh, <coughs> that's just a stock tape. So you're listening, of course, to uh, Keep Left, the program of Victorian Labor College. In the studio is myself, Chris Gaffney, and John Lafferty. Morning, everybody. Well, I thought we'd, uh, I'll start today and then we'll hear from, from John. Well, domestic violence, or as it's often called, intimate partners violence, is uh, an obviously an increasingly visible crisis in Australia. Yet policymakers and opinion shakers continues to deny that the system, the capitalist system, which profits from sexism and misogyny, is responsible for for perpetrating it. Instead, of course, the system blames individuals. This year, two women have been killed every week, double the rate compared to 2014. One in four women will experience intimate partner violence in their lifetime, For women between 15 and 40 years old, domestic violence is the leading cause of death, illness and disability. Uh, Typical of this right-wing opinion, of course, is a woman called Miranda Devine, who writes for the Sydney Daily Telegraph, which is an ultra-right paper. She says it's the fault of the individual women. This would strike you as reasoning remarkable, a battered woman. It's all her fault. On September the 27th, she said, quote, Poverty is the cause of domestic violence, the desperate chaos of the underclass, and that if unsuitable women, unsuitable women, stopped having kids with feckless men, domestic violence wouldn't be such a problem. So it's the women's fault for picking dickheads for men as their partners. That's the logic of this. Divine, like other conservatives, peddles the same old sexist victim-blaming while attacking those receiving any kind of welfare. The National Council of Single Mothers and Their Children, the CEO, a woman called Therese Edwards, spoke uh, on this question. And she says, Although most violence against women is perpetrated by men in the home, intimate party partner violence is the only crime where the victim's expected to leave the home, not the perpetrator. She spoke about the double tragedy of the cut to the New South allowance and domestic violence when then Labor Prime Minister, having just made her very famous misogyny speech, introduced legislation to cut the single parent pension and move sole parents onto New Start when the child turns eight years old. Julie Gillard. This is Julie G- Gillard, that's right. And I must say that I thought the, the female jockey who won the Melbourne Cup gave a far better feminist speech than uh, Julia Gillard. Well, if it was a football match, it would be the men 154 and the women one. So, you know, well, they're, coming, they're, coming, they're well, coming back. Well, that's right. But it was good It was good to hear that, that, that the woman jockey saying that stuff because she at least hadn't done what Julia Gillard had, is to talk feminism with one voice and cut, attack single mothers with the other. Uh, she moved uh, sole parents onto Newstart when their child turns eight years old. Newstart remains at $140 a week below the poverty line for a single person. It's the lowest unemployment benefit in the developed world. 
Capitalism needs women as a largely dispensable part of the workforce, what mm-hmm. used to be called the reserve labour force. It also needs women to continue to do the bulk of unpaid domestic labour while bringing up the next generation of workers. Why does it need women and not, for instance, a man staying at home? Why would that be? Why would it be? Because of age-long sexism. Because men get paid more for a start. Yeah, but I mean, you do have women who are outside working yes. and men who are at home bringing up kids. This, this happens a lot. So Yes. So well, Why I, wouldn't that work just the same? Yeah, well, you ju- you'd have that. It, wouldn't, it doesn't have to be a woman at home, does it? No, of course not. Of okay, course so. not. Oh, no, no, no. I didn't quite understand. I mean, capitalism will still operate if you have a man at home and a woman out working. Well, that's true. exactly the same. So how is capitalism profiting from sexism and misogyny? Well, because capitalism spends a huge amount of time telling women that's their role. And in many ways, they're telling men to stay home. Did. I think you're thinking more of the 40s and 50s. I still think you ask most... Not necessary. No, it's it's not not necessary. Capitalism will carry on regardless... It will, it will, but it hasn't, because the it vast... Will. It, it will unless we do something about well, it. Well, that's exactly, exactly. I mean, women get paid only a proportion of what men get paid, and that women have been... It's not like we're talking about sex A and sex B. We're talking about a sexual differentiation made by capitalism at every possible level. Equal pair? Well, good For point. equal work? Well, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Don't forget the second bit no, 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 no. Un- well, it depends on what you call unequal work. I mean, uh, if you think an executive deserves ten times the salary of no, a nurse, no. I know you don't. But, you know, I mean, it does seem to be the conversation. I don't, I, I'm not watching TV this while back, but the conversation, you watch midweek TV, you look at these bourgeois women, they're always speaking about the CEO's positions, always speaking about parliamentary positions. Never speaking about working class women. Oh, Never no, speaking no, about no, migrant no. women. Oh no, you're right. Class you is know. class is much more important than uh, sexual division. But sexual division is also part of capitalism, and the female sex certainly does worse out of it. But I agree that uh, once a woman becomes wealthy, the working class women can go and kiss their bottoms for all the help they're going to get from ruling class women. That's why I think the the overemphasis on sexuality at the expense of class is completely false. Uh, men are overwhelmingly the perpetrators of violence, and when they're, they're the victims, their experience is qualitatively different compared to women. In general, men don't fear for their lives. When they do leave, they have so much many more choices, autonomy and income. On September the 24th, Turnbull, the Prime Minister, said his government was determined to take a stand against violence, which is laughable, and announced a $100 million special special national domestic violence initiative over four years. But this measure was largely a publicity stunt because this figure was already included in the May budget. And this is, of course, not going to bridge the huge and growing gap between what exists and what is needed to assist women fleeing violence. Struggles for wages and welfare justice are also intrinsically linked to the struggle against male violence. This is because unless women have adequate housing and a livable wage, they cannot easily leave violent relationships. I mean, people say, oh, well, if he's violent, why doesn't the woman leave? Because if she's got three or four children and she's utterly dependent on the man's paycheck, which is often the case, she can't leave. The structural inequality of neoliberalism 
helps embolden sexual attitudes. This is manifest in the results of a Vic Health report, Young Australians' Attitude to Violence Against Women. It found that young Australians are more accommodating to violence against women than those aged 34 to 64 years. Abbott attitudes that excuse or justify violence or the ship responsibility to the victim, as Miranda <coughs> Devine did, contribute to a culture that tolerates violence. Research has shown that unequal power between women and men is a key driver of violence against women. They're not as good as men. State-sanctioned violence against women is evidence in the detention centres. The shocking treatment of the Somali refugee known as Abyan, who became pregnant after being raped on Nauru and was subsequently refused access to treatment, counselling, or refused treatment to counselling, treatment, and her requested abortion by the Immigration Department, is a reminder of just how deeply entrenched sexism and misogyny are in the society. If it had been a man raped, what would the reaction have been? Real solutions to the academic of domestic violence are not going to be based on superficial and often counterproductive law and order approaches. Allowing the state greater financial control over women, says uh, Aboriginal activist Tanya Hunter, is a hidden contributor to domestic violence. She condemned the punitive cashless basic cards, which many Aboriginals have to live on, which takes, I'm quoting her here, takes away self-esteem, takes away control, and will not curb domestic violence in Indigenous communities. Well, we have had this discussion a few weeks back. As, you know, there's, there's arguments here and there as far as the cashless card is concerned. There's some people would prefer it. You know, I mean, like some people maybe recognise they do have alcohol, gambling problems. They'll be, you know, hey, give me the cashless card, you know. And we have also brought up the black economy. You know, well, the fact yes. of the cards. If it's a $100 card, you could sell this for $80, for instance. You know? Yes, that's right. That's right. Actual cash. I mean, it's a, then, short-term, it's a short-term response. Domestic <laughs> violence is not, not a black and white issue, though, is what I'm, what I'm saying now. Well, I, we can... Like either for or against, you know. Neither for and against what? Well, it's, it's not, is this a good thing, is this a bad thing? Because for, for some folk it would be a good thing. Well, yes, but it's, I mean, an, the same people it's an adequate cure to domestic violence. It has no effect. Uh, well, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, it's not going to affect domestic violence. Of course it's not a cure, but I mean, if you look at, for instance, people that go to the casino, mm. right, who, who, who figure out they've got an, an issue with gambling, mm. you know, and they actually have themselves banned. Yes, 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 yes. Are similar in that way? Domestic violence is not incidental. It's built into a class system that profits and maintains itself through women's oppression and exploitation. Addressing the underlying cause of violence against women requires ending sexism and gender inequality. In other words, again, we need a new society. Um, just before uh, just before John launches, it's now ten past and uh, uh, three past ten, and you're listening to uh, left keep left, which started early because we got a bit more time. <laughs> well, we did a little bit of left after breakfast, I suppose. Yeah, well, that's right. That's right. The very end. Yeah. Um, you might bit, know that left. there's a film being shown at the moment of Hamlet at the moment uh, again, but it's getting rave reviews with a bloke called Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, I've heard of him. He's uh, the star of uh, Sherlock, the show that's on TV. Playing, he's a very, very good actor. But anyway, after a performance of Hamlet, he got up and denounced the British government's treatment of refugees mm. from the stage. 
Yeah, I saw that. The actor who was appearing as Hamlet spoke after the final call to make what one audience member described as an impassioned statement. He began by reading out a poem called Home by a Somalian poet. He then spoke about a friend who'd come back from the Greek island of Lesbos a few months ago where there were 5,000 people arriving a day. And he complained how the British government was allowing 20,000 refugees into the country over the next five years. He then said, fuck the politicians. With an audience member recalling, <laughs> it's not quite what you expect when you go for an evening, evening with the bard, being Shakespeare, of course. Shakespeare but, never swore. But, he, but it got a few cheers. Um, he urged the audience to act as citizens in the world and let us bypass any government to help refugees. So that's interesting to see that... Uh, was there ever any swearing in Shakespeare? I know there wasn't Barnes, the well, real Barnes. I bard. don't think I don't. Well, the what? real Bard, Barnes, the, the people. Oh, bard. the real Bard. Sorry, yeah. sorry. <laughs> but was there ever any sh- uh, swearing in Shakespeare? Well, there's lots of coarse language. I yes. think. I mean, I don't think the F word or the C word feature. Yeah. Um, I don't think it was supposed to feature here. I was having a discussion just before. I thought we weren't supposed to feature it. Very anyway, well. I, I you just featured it, didn't you? I quoted it. <laughs> I quote it. It's not <laughs> me right. saying it, even though I might well say it off air, but that was a quote. I, th- a I, think, quote. I think we, might, we could have the board. Things have changed. I mean, what yeah. you see on television, you see anything you want. Yeah. I mean, any word you can care to dream of. You find, and in a way, it's good. I mean, it's, it's just words. Mm. They're just They're words. just noises. They're, They're grunts just, and all that's sorts. Right. Just that's right. Right. So how do, how do we go with the racist stuff? Who? Anyway, the free speech stuff. Just words, the, ra- the racial stuff and all that. You know, the, the laws against particular uh, words being used. Well, I, I'm of the school. And the N word, for instance, which you're not allowed to use. Well, you see, I don't believe in banning words, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, I, I, and I don't believe in banning free speech because for a free speech, if it's a, if you're a cretin, your free speech will damn you. Or two. Uh, <laughs> it's very, very true. It is. Yes. I mean, if you if you're an idiot, yes. when you the people if you're might, an Oscar Wilde, well, you want know, as much quite, free speech as you can go. Well, that's right. But I mean, if people might suspect you're an idiot, mm-hmm. but if you're allowed to say you're racist up, they'll know. No, no, that's right. They'll know. <laughs> Open your mouth and you'll prove you're <laughs> you'll prove it. <laughs> Anyway, what are you going to talk to us about? <clears throat> I'm going back to a subject I've, I've, I've brought up before, so it's a bit of a bugbear for me. Mm-hmm. On October the 19th, the Liberal Party of Canada uh, won that country's national election. The new Prime Minister is Justin Trudeau, the son of Pierre Trudeau. hope I'm pronouncing that right. He was the Canadian Prime Minister for 15 years from the 1960s to the 1980s. Now, one of Justin Trudeau's first election promises is to stop Canada buying any F-35 fighter jets. He went on record before the poll saying, quote, The F-35 stealth first strike capability is not needed by Canada. In comparison, the Australian government says it will continue to buy 58 of these planes at a cost of $12 billion dollars. And rising, there's and rising bu- very fast. There's your budget crisis fixed up immediately. That's right. $12 billion was the original figure going way back now, but that's rising and it has been rising. And we're paying for it. Of this course. is all this hours. Of course, of course. In 2008, in fact, the militarists of the RAAF wanted taxpayers to buy 100 of these war machines, nearly twice as many. 
And it is important to know that Canada's Liberal Party, Large L, are actually quite liberal, and their Conservative Party, Large C, is actually Conservative, which makes things simple. Unlike in Australia, where the Conservatives are called the Liberals and the Liberals are called Labour. Mm-hmm. In this instance, Canada's Liberals are, it would, what would appear, certainly in wanting to get rid of the F- 35s, are actually more progressive than Australia's Labour Party, as Bill Shorten is totally committed to the buying of these fighters. Now, the F-35 fighter jets are being built by the American Lockheed Martin Company. So far, at least six other countries have poured money into the development of these planes, which the governments want for their air forces. Already, though, the Danish government has questioned whether they are not a smart purchase, and now Canada is set to reject them totally. Italy and Turkey are also getting cold feet and have delayed purchase of these jets. Problems for the whole project seem to just get worse. According to the website Politico, and I did look at some other websites just to verify this, because I I couldn't believe what they were saying. I really really couldn't believe it. Listen to these figures. But according to the website Politico and others, last year this program had gone $163 billion over budget. $163,000 $163,000 million over budget. I checked it out, Chris, and, I, and that, that is apparently really? the actual truth. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's absurd. I couldn't believe it. I seriously couldn't believe it. It's $163 billion over budget and is running at seven years behind schedule. All up, the Pentagon right, uh, plans to spend US, th- this is American, US $391 billion on 2,443 aircraft. 160 million bucks each. Those who argue for the plane are now claiming that because of all this money and time spent, the F-35 is too big to kill. Right. We've spent too much. It's taken so long, we can't stop now. It sounds to me a little bit like the too-big-to-fail rhetoric of America's 2008 financial meltdown. Yes, yes, yes. These criminals, the the huge financial companies. The bigger the the criminal, the safer you are. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the Ford and people like that. The bigger you are, yeah, the, yeah. the more that we've got to pump public money into. There have been some insiders who have spoken honestly. In 2013, the Pentagon spokesman responsible for the jet said, well, quote, this is a quote, well, let's make no mistake about it. The program still has risks, technical risks. It also has cost issues, all problems we have to fix. They claim to fix the problem, well, we cop the bill and this is just going on and on mm-hmm. just last year the head of the program u.s air force lieutenant chris bogdan declared the reliability and maintainability of the aircraft was quote not good enough and he's you know he's he's on their side right yeah he's, right right he's up there that u.s air force lieutenant the u.s house armed services committee also said quote we've looked at the reliability too and it really is a big concern the estimate now is deeply unaffordable. According to yet another insider, one of the plane's problems is that, quote, bits fall off. <laughs> bits fall <Really>? off. <laughs> it is funny, but oh, it's, it's, you know... It's, expensive bits, obviously. You know. You would think that bits falling off would be an issue of some concern to a potential buyer. It depends on the bits. You know, it might just be a little bit of detail. You know, a spoiler that you have in the car. Bit of chrome. You know, <laughs> the, you know, the SS Commodore and his, you know, a fancy bit of chrome mm. or something. But uh, it's probably uh, important bits. 
Previous American warplanes have also cost a lot more than we were originally told and taken a lot longer to build. One example was the B-2 Spirit Strategic Stealth Stealth Bomber, if you remember that one, that's the black uh, weird-looking thing. It was also referred to as the Batman plane. Now, look, it might actually, probably, it is actually a good thing if these planes never work because when they do work, they're instruments of mass murder. The United States is the only country to have used any kind of stealth bomber. But since 1989, when this B-2 stealth went into operation, the the, the Batman plane, it has seen action in the invasion of Panama, the 1991 war in Iraq, the Kosovo conflict, the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq in the 2000s, and the 2011 intervention in Libya. So we have got good news out of it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they certainly do get good use out of our money. Apart from bits falling off and claims that Chinese spies have hacked into the F-35's weapons system, the whole purchase does look to be a stupid one. The program is already the most expensive military weapons system in history. I mean, remember how much Reagan used to spend, you know, on his shields and all well, sorts of Well, he turned the America, America from a credit nation into a debtor nation. That's how much he spent. Trillions spent mm. just, you know, up the ante against the Soviets. Then again, it is public money that is being used. The question should be asked, look, if, if we're going to be privatising everything that moves, as the, the capitalists always want to do, why not start with the military? Privatise the military. Governments and big business never tire of telling us that we're living beyond our means and we need to tighten our belts. Yet when it comes to the military, it seems that money is just never an obstacle, as long as it's our money. We need to take a leaf from Justin Trudeau in Canada. Scrap the F-35 purchase, but unlike Trudeau, don't shift the money to some other military expenditure. Spend it where it's actually needed, looking after people instead of killing them. Oh, that's a bit radical. Mm. But <laughs> looking after people, yeah. people. <laughs> 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 but um, Trudeau is actually doesn't Surely want that's to, a low priority. Trudeau wants to spend the money somewhere else in the military, but it's still the military that's going well, to gobble it, it up. Yes, you know, it. just get Governments and big business, as I say, never tire of telling us that we're always living beyond our means. And I got the Wednesday Herald this week, you know, just to see what Jeff Kennett's advice was. Because mm-hmm. he, he speaks with such authority, does Kennett. You oh, know, he's man. a marvellous man. Yeah. Marvellous. <laughs> After much destruction, he did. And his advice, yet again, a very good example of a government and business type giving us, you know, telling us that we need to tighten our belts. So the former Victorian Premier Jeff Kennett, an ex-private schoolboy too, right? More bludgeon money. He says, quote, Australia could be heading for financial abyss. The nation is living well beyond its means and capacity to pay. Jeff's concern might be over the military spending? No. His concern is over providing care to people with disabilities and health costs, which he says oh, are way out of control. Those d- disabled people, they're really just bludgers, aren't they? Unhealthy people, too. Unhealthy, yeah. Another target, wages. <laughs> wages, <laughs> well, yeah. that's right. That's wages, yes. Those yeah. damned wage earners. Quote, the cost of living, right, I, I think he means the consumer price index, I'm not sure, but he says the cost of living is increasing only about 1.7% each year, while wage increases are being granted at much higher levels. What about inflation, Jeff? Yeah, I know. It doesn't bring that in. You no, know. no. The cost of living, I just mean the consumer price index, the inflation, excuse me what it means. 
So no mention of the tens of billions for the military and even more in lost taxes from the big companies who don't pay their way. I mean, there's a few more tens of billions we could get. No, Jeff instead says, quote, the country simply cannot afford this untrammeled increase in costs caused by wages, salaries, health and welfare. Now, it's I'd, just lie upon lie. Yeah. It's just lie upon lie. It's ridiculous, isn't it? I tried to find out how much Jeff Kenner manages to get, <laughs> right? right, from his parliamentary pensions. Oh, that's different. That's quite, different. Qu- quite a tricky exercise. And, and, and people bring up this question, why is it your regular worker, right, has to wait until we actually retire before we get our pension? Well, these jokers, the minute they walk out of parliament, some after, you know, one or two terms... They get lifelong pensions. Yeah, they're straight on to it, right? So I, had, I tried to check out how much Jeff gets you know, per annum in his pension. I think, you know, from a job he stopped actually doing in 1999, so that's 16 mm, years he's been bludgeoning off us. Uh, apparently his best salary is about $250,000 per week. It's something like that. Uh, sorry, sorry $250,000 per annum. Right, right. About five right. grand he, a week. Do you think it's enough for him? Well, yeah, well he doesn't, but, he, you know. He, he thinks we're the ones that need to pay, but I mean, there yes, you go. that's right. It's just I mean, it, it's quite a million. What's that? Sixteen years. That's four million. Too. It's also interesting too. The uh, ACOS, I think it is, has come out and said that if the GST is raised to fifteen percent, rich people will pay three percent more of their income. Poor people will pay seven percent more of their. Of income. course, yeah, it's two and a half times. So, so that, this is their, out, this so. is their solution to mm. their solution is tax the poor. Get the poor to bail out the banks like they did in 2008. Mm. And now if there's a financial crisis, which is deemed not to be a revenue crisis, but is mm. only an expenditure crisis. And in other words, where they couldn't possibly collect any more money from the rich, particularly those who don't pay any tax at all. The solution is tax the poor. Yeah, I mean, you know, you look at these hex fees that people are expected to pay back once they start earning, right? Look at someone like... Not yourself, because you're not quite in the same tax bracket as Jeff would be. No, and the same, not you know. Quite, not but quite. I mean, he's an ex private schoolboy. Yes. How come he doesn't have to cough up for all that? that a lot of it was public money that we had to pay for but him. Of course, right? of course, of course. To be earning his massive salary. To hex debt there, if there's going to be a hex debt in the university, people. Yes, that's same right. Thing. That's right. No, no, it's different. I mean, if, if, you know, they want socialism for the rich. Oh, yes, yes. That's okay if it's gone bottom up. Well, the government exists to protect the rich, to foster their interests. And that, I, you might sound like I'm being cynical there. I'm just being accurate. You're not, oh, you're not being cynical, Chris. No, I'm just I, being wouldn't want, <laughs> I wouldn't want that. How many Trotskyites does it take to change a light bulb? Yeah, I know there's going to be a totally irreverent answer. What is it? You can't change a light bulb, comrade. You have to smash it. Yeah, well, that's pretty right, isn't it? You can't change the capitalist system from inside. You have to smash it. That's no joke. That was a joke, but also a dead, dead accurate one. Well, during the last week, we've seen uh, uh, President Obama has said that up to 50 US special forces are going to be deployed on the ground in Syria. This is an escalation of Washington's illegal intervention into this unfortunate country. This stands in direct contradiction to promises by Obama made since 2013 when he said that he would not put American boots on the ground in Syria. Uh, It's also been claimed by the White House Press Secretary that uh, earlier statements were, quote, related to what we were prepared to, to ensure that our concerns about the Assad regime and the need for regime change were implemented. 
while later escalation, he says, was directed against the Islamic State of Iraq and Israel. This is, of course, all nonsense. Washington has intervened over more than four years in Syria with this principal objective of toppling the government of President Bashar al-Assad and imposing a puppet of US interests in his place. Initially, it waged its campaign for regime change under the banner of human rights, but when the laughing about that subsided, while the CIA coordinated efforts with Turkey, Saudi Arabia and Qatar to funnel billions of dollars worth of arms and funding to the al-Qaeda-linked Islamic militias like ISIS and the al-Nusra Front to foment a bloody sectarian war against the government in Damascus. And we've got to keep remembering that it is the United States that have made ISIS the power that it is uh, is today because their principal objective was to get rid of secular governments in the Middle East, Gaddafi, uh, Saddam Hussein and now Bashar al-Assad. Why? Because they're dictators? No. Clearly, if your main ally is Saudi Arabia, that's not a problem. The problem is that these three sectarian leaders had the illusion that they could conduct policy that actually suited their countries, or at least their interests. In other words, that they could do it without thinking that they would first of all have to embody American interests. And I saw from uh, WikiLeaks, and it's a few weeks back, that apparently going back to 2006, the United States and Israel was plotting to get rid of Assad in Syria. Yes, it goes he, He was getting in the way of the oil um, the oil flow from Saudi Arabia into Europe. Right. right. I, I, that, that's what I read. When ISIS headed eastward from Syria and overran roughly a third of Iraq, including its third largest city, Mosul, the Obama administration launched its direct intervention in both countries, mm. conducting airstrikes and redeploying some 3,500 troops to Iraq. Now the intervention has morphed into a war against ISIS, dumbed, dubbed Operation Inherent Resolve. The desultory character of the U.S. campaign is explicable. In other words, why have the Americans, with all their attacks on ISIS, had so little effect on Over them? a year. Over a year. Mm. The reality is that Washington has no real desire to destroy the Islamic militias, That's right. which it still counts as one of the main fighting forces in its war for regime change, which remains the U.S. objective. What has now prompted the deployment of combat troops in Syria, along with the recent flurry of is Russia's military intervention in support of the Assad government. In just one month of airstrikes, the Russian military has done far more damage to ISIS and other Islamic militias than the US and the so-called coalition, what they've done in a whole year. So Mm. in a month, the Russians have done more to destroy ISIS than the Americans have in a year. It's like a little version of World War II, isn't it? It is, it is. It is in response to this Russian campaign, which is beginning to turn the tide against the Al-Qaeda-linked militias backed by Washington and its regional allies, that the US is sending in its special forces. Now, no one's suggesting, anticipating, no one's suggesting that the Russians are there for the good of humanity or indeed even the good for the Syrian people. Uh, They are there for their interests, but they are not bullshitting when they say they want to destroy ISIS. And if they can destroy ISIS, then Uh, well, The Americans actually don't want this. Outside of initiating a far broader US military deployment in Syria, it's difficult to discern any coherent strategy 
underlying the deployment of these 50 Special Forces troops. It's widely reported they're being sent to the northeast of the country to train, advise and coordinate the further arming of the, Surdish, the Syrian Kurdish militia and a smaller allied group called the Syrian Arab Tribal Force. Turkey, Washington's NATO ally, acknowledged a week this week that its forces had twice carried out attacks on the YPG, which is the uh, Kurdish forces, and has made it clear that it's prepared to intervene militarily to prevent the Syrian Kurdish militia from achieving its aims. Hmm. Thus, the United States forces face the possibility of coming into armed conflict not only with ISIS, not only with Syrian government forces and their Russian backers, but also with America's ally Turkey. Its purpose is to show a show of force, first directed and foremost against Russia. As such, it can only be a a precursor to the increasingly substantial and dangerous escalation of the US intervention, carrying with it the threat of an armed confrontation between the two world's largest nuclear powers. US imperialism is responsible for the ravaging of Syria with a quarter of a million dead and half the population displaced. Backing and arming the Islamic militias, it sought to repeat the success of its regime change operation in Libya that ended with the overthrow of the government, the murder of Gaddafi and the descent of the country into chaos and civil war that continues four years later. The escalation of the US intervention is a crime under international law. It's been authorised by neither the United States nor the Syrian government and represents a continuation of the militarist aggression launched by the Bush administration with the invasion of Iraq in 2003. The target of US intervention is not ISIS and not merely the Syrian government. Washington seeks regime change in Damascus as part of a wider strategy of asserting hegemony over the Middle East, that's ideological control, and preparing for even bloodier military conflicts with Syria's main allies, Iran and Russia. The United States announced the deployment of ground troops in Syria during the same week in which plans were made public for the first time of 4,000 NATO troops on Russia's border. And as provocative US naval operations in the South China Seas also raised the threat of a military confrontation with China. Obama, elected on promises to end US wars in the Middle East, which the majority of American people support, is presiding over an unprecedented eruption of American militarism that threatens to drag the entire region and potentially the world into a major military conflict. Is, is he still hanging on to that Nobel Peace Prize? He's still got that in some cabinet? I mean, that, what that did for me was completely kill any respect you might have had. For the for, Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah, the, no, Nobel was a joke, an absolute joke. It sounds After like, that, not Well, I mean, so. when Kissinger got it, I think around in the late 70s. What Kissinger, did Kissinger get it for? Uh, for being Mr. Peaceful, for bombing Cambodia, presumably, mm-hmm. uh, and Laos and Vietnam and being Mr. Evil. I thought it might have been charisma. Uh, <laughs> extremely <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> extremely <laughs> unlikely. Great lover, apparently. But uh, what do you think about the, the reports which say that US and UK intelligence say that the Russian plane was shot down and it was some rocket and are actually almost pointing the finger at ISIS? Because you know, other people have said ISIS didn't have that capability. Yeah, but what do you I think. About I think that? Well, have they I, been given that capability? Well, yes, but I think I think they're now uh, the passenger uh, plane. 
Yes, I know. But I think it's a more likely explanation, a more believable one, is that there was a bomb on the plane. Already on the plane? On the plane. That's right. So but, it's terrorism. No, it's terrorism. I, mm. I suspect that's right. Otherwise, who would have a motive? And you've always got to ask, who has a motive for these things? I mean, we should know well, the Russians attack that ISIS. in the area. That in the area. Well, that's right. That's there's a motive for ISIS to bring down a, a Russian mm. plane. Um, we do note that in the area where the plane <laughs> fell down was also the area in which the United States and Israel were conducting war games mm. at the same time. The Sinai Peninsula, the, in that area, which is still yeah. under Israeli control. That's right. So that's where that's where it took place. Now, I'm not suggesting for one second there is any evidence that this war games between with the United States and Israel in that area brought down the plane. There's no evidence to support that mm. whatsoever. And uh, I don't know the answer, but it does appear like there was a bomb put on there. And the ones who would gain from that, of course, would be ISIS mm. because the Russians, well, are, the Russians are actually doing serious damage to them. Interestingly, mm. that it's on a Russian plane and not an American plane, which also suggests that the Russians are doing a somewhat better job of eliminating ISIS than the Americans. ISIS, I mean, or some people from who they claim to be ISIS, because, I mean, who are ISIS? You know? well, yes, There's somebody of claiming to be ISIS claimed it right well, at the start. Well, yes, yeah, but I think yeah, well, I mean, they did, but then, but then they could, that could be bullshit. You never know about that. That could yeah. be nonsense too, because here's, uh, if a Russian plane came, of course they're going to claim it. Mm. They want but, to. Well, of course, but... Look at motive. Those strike me as the only people who would actually have a real motive to bring it down. Now, other people's, I don't want to get into conspiracy theory. We mm. don't know. We'll and leave that to the listeners. We'll it? leave that to listen to the listeners. But uh, please, let's get away from conspiracy. We don't know, and therefore we shouldn't guess. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.